Good morning, church. I'm Kendi Easley. I'm the executive pastor here at Bethany, and we are so glad that you're here. If you're in the room or if you're watching online, we're the church gathered in this place. And it's my joy as an executive pastor to be able to visit Bethany location, sometimes multiple on a single Sunday, and I get to be a part of the leadership gatherings. And that means when our council meets or when our Green Lake leadership meets, I get to be a part of that. And recently we had a council meeting and it was on Zoom. And one of our council members who I hadn't seen in a while on Zoom in person in any way said, hey, staff, we just want to let you know, I want you to know that we've been through something that is very disorienting. Like, this is a disorienting time. It's not business as usual. It's not church as usual. Could you please notice what we're experiencing? And I just want to take a minute as we get started to acknowledge that. Yes, it's been disorienting. Some of your faces we haven't seen without a mask. Some of you are still wearing masks. You're more comfortable that way. Some of you are online. You're more comfortable at home. And we're trying to face what does it mean to be the church when we're not all gathered in one space? In some ways, this is similar. Bethany Green, like said, multiple services. We're not ever really all gathered in one place. But it feels different, doesn't it? We've been having some strange distinctions as a culture. We've identified workers that are essential. Are some of you in the room? Your work was essential? Yes. And what about the rest of us? Are we non-essential? Like, what are we doing every day going to work if it doesn't really matter? I mean, what about pastors? Are we essential? Is spiritual life essential? Is physical fitness essential? Is, Is caring for your body essential? There's been another blurring, the blurring between work and home and school. Like, am I at work right now or am I at home? Are we having a conversation or am I on my computer or on my phone? When's lunch hour when you're at home the whole time? Is the refrigerator in the kitchen just open as a grazing all day? There's just a lot to deal with that's changed. And so it is with church. We're trying to discern. While I was on the topic of health, I wanted to mention our health care used to be a private matter, whether or not I had gotten a vaccine, whether or not I had the sniffles. All of a sudden now it's a public matter. If I go to a birthday party and I have the sniffles the next day, do I have to call everybody and say, I have the sniffles? Do I have to take a COVID test? Do we all have to stay home for five days or 10 days? There's so much that's changed and that's unclear. And it can even make us reluctant to be in community. It's so disorienting. My daughter works in healthcare and she helped me as I was thinking like, what does it mean to be disoriented? And she said, well, mom, there's some kind of questions that we ask people to see if they're disoriented. They're actually called an orientation questionnaire. And you're asked questions like this. What's your full name and date of birth? Okay, we can all do that. Okay, right? Sometimes for me, I can't remember. I'm married, been married a long time, but my name changed. Do I count my middle name and my maiden name? I mean, it can even be a tricky question. Where are you right now? Okay, I'm at Bethany Green Lake. You know, is it the corner of Stone and 80th? Or am I at church? Or is the church the people, not the building? I'm at home, but I'm at church. It's confusing. What year is it? Okay, I just want to ask you, when did we last gather in person for Easter? What year was that? 
2019. And I have to sort of count backwards as we get to Holy Week. Like how many years has it been since we got to celebrate Easter with people in the room? Who's the president? What date is it? Why are you here? You know, for a pastor, that can be a really tricky question, sort of an existential question. Why are you here? Now, they mean, why are you at the hospital? What's the matter with you? But these are the questions of disorientation that we come to today with. And I would suggest that as we approach Holy Week, Jesus' desire is to reorient us, to reorient us to God's purposes and intentions and truths and love in our life. Please pray with me. Gracious God, I ask that you would ground us right now, that you would guide us in truth, that we would come to know you, that we would hear, feel, experience uh, the truth of who you are and your great love for us and for the whole world over all time. Would you do that in these moments, we ask, as we worship together in Jesus' name, amen. So today we're going to look at Jesus' leadership and also our followership. So there's a lot written about leadership. Leadership is sort of an industry. There's a lot of books, there's there's degrees, but not so much about followership. So today, as we look at these three sections of our scripture, kind of three different scenes, I would invite you to think about your own following. If you're a social media person, which I barely am, if you've asked to befriend me, I only really do social media when I'm going on an interesting trip, and it's been a while since I went on an interesting trip. So if you're thinking, hey, why isn't Kendi my LinkedIn friend or Facebook friend? It's because I really haven't looked for a long time. But maybe you have. Maybe you're following someone or lots of people. Maybe you're one of thousands or tens of thousands who follow certain Instagrammers, or who listen to certain podcasts, who are the influences that are leading you or leading us? What what TV shows have we been binge watching? Where are we getting our news? What's influencing us through our reading? How is our mind being shaped? Who are we following? So I'd like to invite us to look into this passage as Jesus... um, takes part or leads in what's called the triumphal entry. And there's going to be three scenes. First, we're going to notice that uh, Jesus has a plan for his couple of disciples. And about half the section that's of scripture that's on the triumphal entry is addressing this plan where he tells two disciples, here's what I want you to do. And then the second scene, we're going to see the actual procession into Jerusalem. And we're going to look at the fact that Jesus' procession was not the only procession in town during Passover. And then thirdly, we're going to look at when Jesus goes into the temple, what he does, what he experiences, and a glimpse of what happens next. So first, Jesus gives instruction, and it's in Mark chapter 11. In verse 2, we see that Jesus says, he turns to two disciples, and he says, go I'll go ahead into Jerusalem and you're going to see a, a colt. It's actually the colt of a donkey. So you're, you're going to fetch a donkey. Now, these 12 disciples over the past chapters in Mark have had some arguments, not arguments about who would get to go fetch a donkey. No, they're arguing about who's the greatest. Like, which one of these disciples, you know, Jesus, like, who do you like the best? Who do you think has like the most leadership potential? Like, is it me? 
And could I sit at your right hand? And could I sit at your left hand? Like, we'd like to be the ones that are right next to the throne of power. In last week's scripture, Jesus picks three disciples, James, John, and Peter, and he takes them up on the Mount of Transfiguration. They get to see the glory of God. He calls them out by name. Like, he does choose those three. In this passage, he just turns to two. We don't get their names even. Hey, you two, could you go get the donkey? And then he gives them some specific instructions. And here's what's going to happen. You're, you're going to, you might go into town and you're going to untie a colt that obviously doesn't belong to any of us. And someone might ask you, like, what are you doing untying my colt? And here's how you're going to respond. And that's what happens. Here's what I'd like to note. The disciples obeyed Jesus without asking a lot of questions. They, they trusted what he said, evidently. And maybe this is a reflection for us. Aren't there times in our Christian life where it's essentially just go get the donkey? Just do the basic thing. Go to a meeting, return an email, listen to a friend, have a difficult conversation. Take care of your children or grandchildren or your neighbor's children or grandchildren. Take in someone's trash. Do some simple act of service that represents Christ to the world. We humans, we like the big picture. We like to know the outcomes. We like to know that if we gather to pray for Ukraine, God's going to do something mighty. And that war is going to stop because we gathered for prayer. Maybe we're just called to pray. Maybe we're called to suffer alongside. Maybe we're called to have the kind of compassion as if that were us. Those are our brothers and sisters who suffer. Maybe we're just called to kind of carry the load alongside Jesus. So following Jesus involves trust. As followers of Jesus, we trust Jesus' instructions. Maybe you have a sense that God has given you some very specific instructions, a specific call on your life. Or maybe you wish that you had something a lot more specific. I would say when you're unsure, just go back to the basics. Come to worship, whether online or in person. Open your scriptures. We've been talking about reading through Mark. If you haven't done it, it's not too late. It's only 16 chapters. We're in chapter 11. Takes a couple hours. You have now till Easter. Actually, the week after Easter to complete it. Join in. Now's the time. Paul, the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians that now we see through a mirror dimly, but someday we shall see face to face. The reformer spoke of faith seeking understanding. We want the big picture. We want to know in full, not in part. And one day that will come. But in this life, it's more likely to be just simple obedience, just saying yes to Jesus, maybe today for the first time, maybe recommitting yourself like, okay, I think this is making sense. I'm I'm in again. Maybe it's getting reoriented. And if Jesus is asking you to just go get a donkey, go ahead. Just say yes. Okay, speaking of donkey, now we're coming to the second scene of our passage. In the second scene, uh, the donkey has been brought to Jesus, 
And Jesus is going to get on the donkey. Now, he's been in Jerusalem previous years, previous times, previous Passovers, previous celebrations. But there's something about this one that's special. There's something distinctive about Jesus coming into Jerusalem on a donkey, not on foot. It's a prophecy fulfilled. King Jesus coming on a donkey, it's in Zechariah 9.9, says this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey. So maybe those disciples, maybe that crowd that was gathered there was having this on on their mind. They're seeing Jesus get on a donkey. And it's specifically said that hasn't been ridden before. Now, if you've done any horseback riding, I've done very little, but usually a horse or I would imagine a donkey that's never been ridden before is not the kind of animal you just want to get on because they usually are not so happy to have a rider for the very first time. So there's a little bit of mystery here. Did Jesus have mastery over that animal in such a way that the donkey also obeyed? Like, okay, I'll, you, I'll take you into Jerusalem. They threw their coats on his back and Jesus got on and off they go slowly, step by step with people crying out. And I love that image. I love watching the kids come on Palm Sunday, maybe reluctantly waving their palm. Maybe some, as you saw, the palms kind of dragging behind them. They're cute kids with their palms. And that's how I picture Palm Sunday. But actually, there was a different backstory going on on that Sunday because there was another parade in Jerusalem. Every year at Passover, tens of thousands of Jewish people would make the pilgrimage to the temple at Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, to celebrate that God had spared them. And that made the Roman government very nervous to see a huge crowd, a passionate crowd gathered in the name of God. It got them concerned that that crowd might become a mob, that they might, that there might be an uprising against Rome. So every year at Passover, just as people were making their pilgrimage to temple, there was another parade. One of the days of Passover, it would be the Roman governor would come in with chariots, and armor and huge horses with their kind of clinking armor with the, the Roman, uh, helmet and mask with feathers, huge, usually red or bright yellow feathers coming out. It would be a very dramatic show of power. Think tanks coming in after, after the Tiananmen Square massacre. Think show of military power. And the crowd around that parade would also shout out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, because they saw the Roman governor as Lord, as having inherited that position generation after generation, as even the son of God. So there were two parades going on, the Roman governor approaching from the West and Jesus approaching from the East. And the crowd is shouting out, shouting out the joy of salvation. And yet, who is really bringing salvation? Which way is it? Which way is it for us? 
how do we see this kind of contrast, the worldly military power of Rome and the spiritual power characterized by humility of Jesus? There are times for me where I would admit, even as a church, we can get the two mixed up. We can think that we're bringing uh, salvation when in fact it's God who brings salvation. We're not doing salvation by our good deeds. We're, we're living into our own salvation by taking that humble place. I was a youth pastor for several years and back in Spokane. And one of the kind of joys that we had in youth ministry was a large youth group. And usually, at, I think spring break, we would take our students to the Yakima uh, Indian Reservation, and we would serve, as we understood it, in ways that were, we hoped, helpful. And one of the things that I was on a little team, there were different teams did different things. I was on a little team one year that was asked to paint a woman's bedroom. And so we got organized. I think she chose the color. I hope so. I honestly don't remember. It was a beautiful blue. But we went in and, and painted her bedroom. And as we were doing that, there was a time when we had a break and we went in the kitchen. And the kitchen was really um, needing painting. It had like the paint was peeling and it, it looked like things had been on the wall and taken down and left a mark. And, and I thought, you know what? It would be even better if we painted her kitchen. And so I kind of got special permission that we go back a second day and we were cleaning and up on top of the refrigerator. I remember it was super greasy. Have you ever like done the white uh, glove test on your own refrigerator? Horrible place to be hovering and painting. So we were up there painting and tick tock. It was looking like even in day two, we might not get this kitchen painted. And we had carefully taken the things down off the wall. And she really wanted those things back on the wall. And I can kind of remember in that moment thinking, oh dear, I've bitten off more than I can chew. And I'm going to work through lunch and try to make up for it. Well, as afternoon wore on and kids were getting tired, the woman whose home it was said, it, um, could we, could you all take a break and just like stop where you are? And I was like, no, we can't. We're not quite done. We're hardly going to get done by dinner. And she said, well, I was really hoping that in addition to painting my house, you would pray for me. Ah, like we're there in the name of Jesus being really determined about painting her house. And what she really wanted was for us to sit down and pray with her. Because it turned out, as I finally had us do, sit down and have tea together, it turned out the reason we we're painting her bedroom is she was getting ready for surgery and she was expecting to be laying in her bed. She had a lot of anxiety about her surgery. So the gift of taking a humble place, not, not trying to get good things done for Jesus, but trying to be the presence of Jesus to someone in need really reshaped my thinking about what is a short-term mission trip? What does it mean to serve another person? And since that time, and it was decades ago, because I'm not like your youth pastor anymore. <laughs> you have people who have a lot more energy and kind of are with it in a different way than me. Um, but there have been books written about this experience, um, not just mine, but there, a book called Reimagining Short-Term Missions has come out. Our own Nathan Nelson has an article. Yeah, applause for Nathan. He's in the front row here. Um, he has an article in this book, and um, one of the people I've actually heard of, a friend of mine takes her youth group um, on a mission, tr uh, mission trip, but it, he calls it something different. I want to tell you about Corey Greaves and the uh, mission experiences that he facilitates now on the Yakima Reservation. Corey Greaves is the president of a Native American nonprofit called Mending Wings. 
Corey himself is of Blackfoot, Klickitat, and Irish descent. And he says this, we work to empower Native American youth and families to walk together in wholeness and beauty, to honor creator through our cultures and lives, and to promote healing and wholeness through our programs. We also aim to share with others the life-changing hope we find as followers of the Jesus way. Isn't that a beautiful statement about following? To be a follower of the Jesus way. That's what the triumphal entry is trying to show us. The Jesus way is a humble way. The Jesus way is is not coming with all power. All power he has. He's going to show us that on Easter Sunday. So to follow the way of Jesus. Get the donkey. Walk in 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 a humble way. Take a humble position. And then let's see what Jesus does next. Our third point and our third scene Jesus enters the temple. He entered Jerusalem. He went to the temple, expected. He's doing everything as planned. And then, this is the unexpected part. He looked around. He looked around and realized it was, it was late in the day. So he took the 12 and left back to Bethany. Unexpected. Like all of this lead up, all of this build up, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And Jesus pauses. He takes a breath. He takes a moment. Would you even say to get oriented to the circumstances? To see, to feel, to reflect. And then he makes a decision. We're going to regroup. We're going we're gonna to go tonight and spend the night in Bethany, and then we're going to come back. In a book with 40-ish devotionals, they say, for a life of imperfection, the book is called Good Enough, written by Kate Baller and Jessica Ritchie. They say this, honesty allows us to take a moment and take stock before we forge ahead. Maybe we're in that kind of a moment as a culture. We've been through something. Let's take a breath. Let's take stock of where we are. One of the most disorienting experiences I ever went through was my senior year of college. Like, yes, I've been disoriented. I went to Tokyo and I I was in a train station. I didn't even know what level I was on. Once my husband and I were driving across country and we went in a gas station and we're going to change drivers. We came out of the gas station and I took us back the wrong way. I was completely disoriented. But when I was graduating from college, I was one of those people who, as we approached that last quarter of college at UCLA, spring quarter, I began to say things like, this is the last time I'm going to register for classes. I didn't know someday I'd go to graduate school. This is the last time we're going to ever have a spring party. This is the last time I get to live with 60 women in a sorority house. This is the last time I get to climb the hill up to the quad and go into my office as a student body officer. This is the last time. My friends got so sick. I'm like, Kendi, yes, it's the last time. Well, it was almost like I was anticipating the grief that I would feel. Valor and Richie go on to describe this. There is a time to mourn. Let it take up as much space as it needs. Your future self can wait. 
I wonder if that's what was happening to Jesus. When he looked around that temple and he saw many changers and he saw people selling uh, animals for sacrifice at exorbitant prices, he saw people getting ripped off. He was going to come back the next day. And on his way back, he's hungry in the morning and he sees a fig tree. He wants a fig and, and there are no figs. So he curses the fig tree. And when they come back later in the day, it's, it has died. He goes into the temple and this is that moment where we talk about righteous indignation and righteous anger. He turns over the tables. He cleans the place out. And then he keeps going through the week. He, he goes to the garden of Gethsemane. He takes a knee and he says, God, Father, if you could let this cup pass from me, could we do this salvation thing a different way? He has a last meal with his friends, with his followers. And then he goes before Pilate and we'll celebrate on Good Friday, the amazing sacrifice of Christ, the innocent one who doesn't defend himself. He accepts that he is the one that Pilate makes a scene with. Every year, the governor of Rome at Passover would would hold an execution. He'd, He'd stand as judge. He'd make it clear what his power was. And he'd give permission for one person to be exempted, somebody from death row to be exempted, essentially. And and as they come out that day, Pilate's kind of hoping it's going to be Jesus. But instead, the crowd, maybe the same crowd that had just cried out, Hosanna, is so disappointed that Jesus isn't overthrowing the whole government that they cry out, crucify him, crucify him. And they want Barabbas. Jesus, that's what Jesus is going to face this coming week. He's, he, maybe he's mourning that future of what's going to happen. We have an artist in our midst, Abigail Platter, and she's here right now. I'm going to show you a piece of her art, but Abigail, would you stand up so we could put a face to this? Let's give Abigail a round of applause. Abigail has been really living with the grief of the pandemic and expressing it um, through her art. And she has an art show going on called Grief House. It's at the Nickerson Studios at SPU through the rest of the spring. I would invite you to go look at this whole series of portraits and uh, sketches and watercolors that are showing this, this idea of the grief that we've been through, this disorientation, the sadness, the reframing, the, the lack of understanding, really the, the despair, the depression that is expressed um, in these paintings. And I want to share one with you. This is a sketch called Don't Drop the Church, It'll Break. And I'm not a master of art interpretation, but here's some of the things that I see. Not just what's leaving her, her mind or even her heart, but what is she holding on to? She's holding on to the church. She, she's kind of got it a little bit in an embrace. And as Abigail's titled this piece, don't drop it. Because we have a fear that things are changing so much that it's kind of on our shoulders to keep the kingdom of God alive. Well, friends, here's the good news. It's the Roman Empire that fell. The ruins are in Rome. The ruins are not amongst the people of God. Yes, we're a broken people, but we have a good God. We have a God who's been steadfast century after century after century, who's done a new thing after wars and plagues, after the church has taken misstep after misstep. 
God continues to redeem through the people of God. I met a new friend last week who said this, I've sort of drifted away from church. I was a regular churchgoer and I've been going to AA for years. They just seem sort of different to me. Church people, they, I I don't know exactly how she put it. They seem sort of like they're put together, like they're kind of putting something forward, like they've got it together. And AA is just gritty. I just love that. Friends, the church is meant to be just plain gritty. Let's do life together. Let's be dependent on one another in the way that the AA community is dependent on each other. To be reminded that we all need a higher power, that we all need each other. Someone came this morning and said, I think he said it this way, I've been in my hidey hole for two years. He said, I've been watching Bethany online, but it's fascinating to see you all in real life, like how tall you are. And I thought, and how wide I am. (laughs) We're called to be the people of God. We're called to sit with Jesus, to follow Jesus where he goes. And where he's going this week is not easy. So. If you feel a little bit disoriented, maybe this is the very week, this holy week, this week that stands out, out of the whole year, that demonstrates the power of God, the power over death. Let's get reoriented. Let's be followers of the Jesus way. Please pray with me. Gracious God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for Mark's representation of it. Uh, Thank you for the two who went and got the donkey. Thank you for the crowd that gathered to say Hosanna, to recognize you, to say blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And God, we thank you for the 12 that, that left that moment and regrouped with you. We thank you for the lives they lived after the resurrection. We thank you for the way the church has been built, even on brokenness, and yet it is a rock. So God, may we build our lives upon the rock in Jesus' name. Amen.